This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. You can reach me at mhs at altamontenterprise.com. I'm talking to Gianluca Russo, who became a journalist because he likes telling stories. As a Gilderland High School student, he was involved in both acting and journalism. He sees each as a way of storytelling. At age 24, he has just published his first book, The Power Plus. He says he's gone through a difficult period in his life from age 18 until about 21, where he felt he had no purpose. He felt lost. Talking to the courageous women who shared their stories helped heal his own wounds. I'm so excited today to be talking to John Luca Russo, who is in New York City to launch his first book. His book is called The Power of Plus, Inside Fashion's Size Inclusivity Revolution. And it's being released on August 16th by Chicago Review Press. So congratulations and welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm just going to read a little bit from the introduction of your book, because I think it sets the tone for the whole book. It's a book where you interview some very famous people, but you keep it personal. You keep it um, accessible. So you write in the introduction, we give in to society's unattainable beauty standards and unconsciously succumb to the pressure to be thin enough or die trying. It's time to take back the narrative. So what, what led you to do this? Why did you decide at a very young age, how old are you? I'm 24 now. <laughs> 24, that you... You could take back the narrative. Yeah, well, I came into the industry very early on um, when I had kind of really just started college. And I was witnessing Teen Vogue go through this revolution. And that was a magazine that I'd really loved. And at the time, they were changing their focus to really incorporate these topics of identity and representation into the foundation of who they were. And that really resonated with me because I felt growing up that I was always trying to grasp onto my purpose and figure out who I was and what kind of mark I wanted to make with my life. And when I saw Teen Vogue kind of make this very pivotal change and, and start this revolution throughout the magazine industry that sparked so many conversations around representation, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. And for me, that meant opening up the dialogue around body diversity, something that had always plagued me in my youth, but that I never really had the words to discuss. So my junior year of college, I started writing for Teen Vogue and I was very quickly able to dive into this topic. Um, and from there, it kind of spiraled very fast over the next few years. And so I got to a point where I knew I wanted to do something bigger than just writing magazine articles here and there. I wanted to do something that felt like a celebration of everyone who has forced this conversation around body diversity into the forefront um, and, and a way for us to talk about how we can continue it and move forward. Because I think a lot of work has been done, but there's still a lot that needs to be changed. So this book is a celebration of how far we've come, but a reminder of how much further we have to go. And it is indeed that all the way through. You have those two points. You have the sort of Janus face look 
of going backwards to see where we've been with some absolutely fascinating history. Like, I never knew about Lane Bryant, (laughs) for instance, and then looking forward to where you want to go. But my favorite chapters were the ones where you were at the center of them. And I'm just going to ask you, I don't want to give away too much of your book, because, of course, you want people to read it. But um, I'm just going to ask you to walk through the basic storyline of Chapter 6, which is called Some of your chapter titles are great. Runways and Redemption. And um, this chapter starts with you at your first fashion week. And um, you're saying you're hearing the words of Miranda Priestly in your head. (laughs) And she's that Meryl Streep character in, in the movie The Devil Wore Prada. And she's saying... Everybody wants this. Everyone wants to be us. But just kind of tell, walk us through the story of that chapter, because I think it tells a lot about you. Yeah, that's the first chapter that I really open up about my own kind of personal perspective there. So I'm glad you enjoyed that one. Uh, but essentially, I was in college at the time, and I had come to New York to do an internship. And I kind of just was, you know, tweeting my thoughts about Fashion Week as it was coming up. And by chance, it caught the eye of Gabrielle Korn, who was the former editor-in-chief of Nylon. And she had reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to cover New York Fashion Week men's um, if they sent me. And so I, of course, said yes. And by some kind of weird coincidence, I ended up in the front row of my first fashion show, which is like a very rare and crazy thing to happen and certainly something I wasn't prepared for. Um, But it was a moment where I felt that this was what I was fighting for, to have the access to spaces like these. And still in the moment, I felt out of place. And so it was weird to be sitting at your first fashion show. I was 20 years old. I'd never done this before. Um, To be in the front row, to be around such incredible people who I admired, but to feel so out of place. And that juxtaposition there is one of the the first experiences that I had that really moved me to want to write more about this topic. Um, Because it's about so much more than just, you know, allowing people in. It's about really making them feel welcome. And there's a difference there between opening the door for people to attend events like Fashion Week and saying, we're inclusive of all and really meaning it. And what does that mean to mean it and make spaces that are welcoming of all? So it was a really exciting experience, but I walked away with a weird taste in my mouth because I was glad to be there. I was glad to finally be at Fashion Week and to to be able to start to make my mark. But at the same time, I felt so out of place. And And I knew that was a feeling that wouldn't go away overnight. And so it was something I had to work on. And that's true for many people who attend Fashion Week and who work in New York and work in fashion in general. We're starting to have doors open to us. We're starting to feel a little more welcome in the industry, but we don't feel at home yet. And so that divide is what I really want to try to to bridge with this chapter and with this book as a whole. Yes, I think you succeed because as you're sitting in that front row seat, you write that you're waiting for someone to come up and tell you it's a mistake. You have to get out of the seat. (laughs) They're going to sit there. And I think a lot of us have that feeling in life. separate from the fashion world. It's just kind of a universal feeling. Um, You know, do I belong? Am I part of this? And it becomes sort of a a larger metaphor for for life. The other chapter that I wish you would um, walk us through is called Rewriting the Fantasy. And you started by saying, and lots of your first lines, you must have 
I want to talk to you about how you became a journalist, because as an editor, we're always working on leads, you know, that first sentence to hook the person in, and you do it with every chapter. It's like a, a separate story with every chapter, and you get your you get your hook in. And you start this one by saying, had it not been for Victoria's secret, I wouldn't have a fashion career. That's just a really good sentence. <laughs> because <laughs> you think of Victoria's Secret and you think, okay, why? So tell us that story. Yeah, it was a really pivotal moment in my career. I was in my last semester at UAlbany studying journalism. And at the time, I was working as a daily writer at Teen Vogue. And so I would kind of go to class and I would also be writing news pieces at Teen Vogue at the same time and, and kind of be jumping between the two. And I was trying to kind of make my mark and, and work my way up at the magazine, which was a difficult thing to do as someone, of course, who was not only younger to the magazine, but also not in New York. And so I was looking for that opportunity to jump in. And at the time, this huge uproar happened around Victoria's Secret because the former CEO had come out and made some very hateful comments. And finally, the brand was getting attacked in the way many thought they deserved to be for many years for being so exclusionary. Um, and I felt that that was my moment to jump in. I had spent the year before kind of really starting to write about biodiversity, slowly making my network. And I knew that I had a perspective there that could be covered. Um, so I reached out to my editor. It was the day before Thanksgiving break. So she wasn't even in the office, but by some chance she was looking at her email and she said, yes. And I was at UAlbany. I like remember this moment perfectly because it felt so big to me. And I was like in my little cubicle because I used to intern in the communications office. So I had like a little cubicle in the corner emailing her, which I like should not have been doing while working, but I was doing it regardless. And she said, I would love for you to write about this, to be the one to cover it, but you have an hour because I'm leaving to go home. Um, so I had an hour to write this piece that I knew was going to be big because everyone was kind of checked out. So I'd be the first one covering it. But I knew what I was going to say. And I was going to talk about how exclusionary they were and, and really um, how they had impacted so many people. And so I was able to do that. And, and it you know, got good reception. And it really started to show my editors that I could do more. But it was such a pivotal moment for me because it showed me the potential of media and the potential of writing. Um, because before that, I'd really just been doing like shopping roundups and listicles and, and all that kind of generic stuff. But this was the first time I was able to do a feature that really impacted so many people on a personal level. Um, and so it was a really moving moment for me. And I was able to, you know, write something that I never thought I would have the ability to do, but to have an impact on people and then seeing people share it and comment and share their personal stories with it. It just felt like this is what I should be doing. Yeah, and I didn't realize until you just told us that, that you did it in an hour. That's kind of remarkable. So let's just back way up, since what makes you part of this local podcast is you grew up in Kilderland. Just tell us a little about your growing up life. And I know from an email I unearthed that you sent me a decade ago <laughs> that you were very committed to being a journalist as a kid in high school, but you were also in other things because I found a story where you had been in the, um, the Gilderland Players production of Curtains. You were in the play within the play, the Robin Hood character, and I talked to Mr. Maycock, as I always do every year, and he described you as being 
really over the top. They don't get much more theatrical than John Luca, he said. So, I mean, you were somebody that could have gone in a lot of different directions. What, what was it? Just kind of walk us through your time at Gilderland, what your experiences were like there, and what, what led you to journalism. Yeah, so in high school is where I really started to be exposed to journalism. At the time, I was performing, and that was always kind of my focus in life. I would spend hours every night watching videos of performers on Broadway and imitating them and learning everything about the industry. Um, and that quote is very correct. I was very theatrical, to put it simply, um, very over the top and frankly annoying at the time, as most musical theater kids are. Uh, <laughs> but it was really formative for me. And I discovered a love for storytelling. And that's what kind of uh, partly led me into journalism at the same time. I'm splicing in here something John Luca told me at the end of our interview when I asked him what was next, because it fits so perfectly with his Gilderland High School theater experience. I've got um, I got two more books in the works now. Uh, one is a novel based on my high school experience. Um, and so it is a theater kid novel, uh, very much based on what I went through and what uh, a lot of other theater kids have gone through in trying to kind of find your purpose in theater. Um, and so I spent uh, you know a few months speaking to theater kids across the country about their experiences. And I wrote this book that I hope is very empowering. So I'm working on that. Um, and the other one is another nonfiction book about body diversity on Broadway. So I am uh, going hard into theater in my next stage of life, uh, but that is what I'm working on now. And now, after hearing about John Luca's future, we're going back to our original conversation on his high school experience. Um, I was part of uh, the high school's broadcast journalism club and was able to do that throughout my years, as well as performing. So I was able to do both. And, and really, for me, it was always about storytelling. Whatever aspect it was, whether it was through theater or dance or writing, I just loved to be able to uncover new stories um, because I felt like I was uncovering my own at the same time. And so for me, it was about getting to uncover other stories and play parts or talk about other people about their experiences and be able to look at it from an outside lens and then figure out what's my story? How do, what is kind of my evolution over the next few years? Um, because I felt kind of out of place. Like I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to figure out, you know, of course, like, what am I going to do with my life? Something that everyone has questioned in high school. And I felt that pressure on my head always. And I didn't know, you know, I knew I loved performing, but I knew it ultimately wasn't going to be the career for me. Um, I, at the time, liked journalism, but I wasn't too fond of broadcast journalism. Uh, and I hadn't done much, you know, writing. I really had just done on-air stuff. So I was just trying everything I could. Uh, so when I graduated high school, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I didn't apply to any colleges. I ended up going to SECC and studying to be a paralegal for the first two years. But very soon into that, I realized I needed to reconnect with storytelling. And so everything from high school, all those moments on stage and in broadcast journalism just came back to me. And I knew that this is what I had to do. I needed to find a way to bring that passion for storytelling back into my life. Um, and writing was the way I was able to do it. Wow. I like that idea of a a journalist is a storyteller. That's not usually how it's described, but that's, I think, a really, and it fits your book. So tell us about the seed that was planted. When, when did this idea for your book grow? What, what did it germinate from? There must have been a moment where you thought, oh, this is more than 
a magazine story. This is a book. Like, how, how did that happen? Yeah, I, w- I had graduated UAlbany um, a semester early, but I was kind of waiting to still walk the stage. And so I had a period of about, you know, four or five months where I was just kind of roaming and trying to figure things out. And when I had graduated, I had some full time job opportunities, but I wasn't I didn't feel like they were right for me. And I wanted to stay freelance for a while and try to figure things out. I figured I'd give myself a few months until my official graduation. Um, But I was really lost at the time. And I had really burnt myself out in college, going to school full time while also you know, writing full time now and working at these places. And so I took a few months off and in, um, you know, June of 2019, a few weeks after my graduation, I read this book more than enough by Elaine Welteroff, who's the former editor in chief of Teen Vogue. And it just absolutely changed my life. And she's someone who I deeply admire and her career path is just incredible to see and, and getting to see the intricacies of it and the issues she's endured and how she was able to endure them and still make such a global change in the magazine industry really inspired me. And so I knew I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to create something that was bigger than just articles here and there. I wanted to create something that felt like a piece of me and felt like an introduction of who I am into the world. Um, so I wanted to write a book and I had no connections to do so. I knew nothing about publishing. Um, I am notoriously not a reader growing up. My friends will tell you that I was never read a book in high school English classes. Um, I could write, but reading was definitely not my forte. And so I needed to kind of learn fast, but I had a plan And that fashion week, just two months later, I went to 10 of the different magazines I had worked for and I asked them all if I could write a big feature about plus size fashion. They all said yes. So over the period of a week, I had these 10 big features come out and a lot of them got a lot of attention online, which was great. At the end of the week, I kind of did a Twitter thread and just kind of recapping, you know, these are the 10 articles I did. I spoke to over 60 people for them. It was great. And it caught the attention of a literary agent. She reached out. I signed pretty fast. Um, And from there, it was just, I knew I was writing a book about plus size fashion. I just had to figure out what it was and what the story was. And for me, the story was all about community um, because that's what had brought me here was the plus size community and all of these beautiful people in fashion who had shared their stories with me in those articles. Um, And particularly Hunter McGrady, who's an incredible model. uh, She made this stance at that fashion week to not attend any shows or events that were not inclusive. And she turned down over, I believe it was, 20 jobs that weren't inclusive that fashion week and over the course of the week i'd interviewed her three times for three different pieces and we quickly became friends and seeing her strong dedication to inclusivity there across the aisle is what really moved me to want to make a similar stance in my own way and for me that meant writing this book where i could celebrate women like her and people like uh of course ashley graham and precious lee and paloma Alcesa, all these incredible new models um where i could tell their stories and then show how we can get to what's next and how their stories can be the blueprint for the future. Um, So that Fashion Week really is what kind of changed everything for me and and showed me that this is what I need to be doing next. So tell us about the structure of your book, because now that I hear your idea of community being central, it makes sense to me. You have these roundtable sections interspersed with the narrative chapters and just tell us what the roundtables are. Yeah. The roundtables for me represent the book in three different sections, the past, the present, and the future. And so I wanted those roundtables to set the tone for the chapters that followed. So the first one really talks about 
an overview of plus size fashion, you know, how three crucial people have been able to make change what they've done. The second one really talks about where we're at right now in inclusive fashion, the issues we're facing, how we're tackling them. And the last one talks about a frontier that isn't yet tackled, which is plus size menswear and how we can push forward and include that in the future. So the roundtables are kind of my a guiding post. It's like my sneak peek into what the chapters that follow will come. But the book ultimately starts with a little history, um, which I think is fundamental here into understanding the issue. And so the first two chapters, two, three chapters are really history oriented and includes people like um, Emmy, who's you know the first plus size supermodel um, and her experience in the 90s that's how the you know the first chapter opens up and it follows from the 1990s to about you know 2010 and what that was like you know how this essentially all got started and then once we kind of get to 2010 till now that's when the book starts to open up more into what are the issues we're facing now and for me i didn't want to write a history book i wanted to write a book with history and so the first you know few chapters there's a lot of history there i try to make it light because i know history can sometimes bog things down um and then the rest of the book I'm, i kind of incorporate the history into the social commentary and and uh, experiences that we're having right now and so i kind of merge the two as the book goes on but i wanted to to follow a journey of, uh, you know, the past to now while also following my perspective as someone who came into the industry to where I am now. So I wanted those to play parallel to each other. And they do. <laughs> it <Thank> worked. <laughs> so one of the things you do is you sometimes kind of almost have an aside as you're writing to explain things to the reader. And one of my favorite comments was, um, I never forget my decision to stick firmly to the term fat, because looking back, it set the tone for the journalist I so desperately wanted to be, one who spoke truth, who spoke fire, who made people uncomfortable in the best way, a journalist on a mission to save lives and liberate others from the purgatory of fat phobia. So there you are as a writer in the midst of your book, taking a little break from the narrative to kind of say, hey, reader, th this, is, this is why you're seeing that word. But just tell us about, you say you never forget the moment of that decision. Just tell us a little about that and, and the decision. Yeah, I think when people start in fashion, they realize that labels in fashion are sometimes not good. And I think we're in a time where people love labels, um, you know, personal labels, how they choose to identify all of that. In fashion, you realize that those labels can other you very fast and put you at a lesser level. Um, and so people will look down to you if you self-identify with labels like fat. They'll put you in a category where you're kind of irrelevant to them in fashion. And that's what I found out very quickly in the industry was a lot of the models were rejecting that term and opting for a term like curvy uh, because that allowed them to still be part of the plus size community, but allowed them to still be essentially, you know, used by brands. Brands would still use them, think that they're appropriate, but if they were, you know, unapologetically fat, as many of these influencers are, they wouldn't necessarily fit that brand's vision. And so it was a moment where I had to decide, you know, what terminology am I going to use? But even further, what am I going to stand for in this work? What kind of level do I want to attack this on? For me, that word felt like a revolution. 
and it's, it's true for so many people as well who are in that chapter. Um, and not everyone agrees with it. And, and I think that's the beauty is everyone is going to have different opinions about how they want to self-identify and whether or not they want to self-identify. I mean, I'm a huge fan of no labels on a personal level. And I, I think that is certainly kind of the future, um, but everyone has different opinions. But for me, that's at the tone for who I wanted to be because it felt like a revolution in and of itself just by using that word. And I've seen that's true. And, and you know, even looking at 2018, when I started really writing until now, that word back then was still stigmatized in fashion media. You would not see it in fashion headlines. And now pretty much any time I write a piece, it's in the headline and it's certainly in the article. And this is at top magazines like InStyle and Glamour and Refinery. They're all using this word. So just in the period of a few years, we were able to normalize something that was weaponized against these people for so long. And I think that really shows the importance of taking a stand for what you know is right. And for me, using that word meant a lot and helped me more. Um, for other people, it's the opposite. And I think we have to just kind of make space for everyone to choose what they prefer. But that word meant a lot to me. And I wanted to use it in this book, but I wanted to give that context in the book because I know it makes some people uncomfortable. So I wanted people to understand why that word has value and why it's used throughout the book. Yeah, I, I like the honesty of your writing. You do that throughout the book as you're, <laughs> you're not just posing as an outside observer. You're writing as someone who's kind of in the thick of it. Um, another part that interested me was um, this idea of who is the average American woman. And um, you're talking about every woman who I took to be me, you know, you're saying um, statistics show that a majority of curvy shoppers live beyond the metropolitan boundaries where fashion week remains a fantasy and target shopping a lifestyle. To our every woman, conversations about fat liberation and size equality may seem as foreign as farm life does to city dwellers. And then you later ask the question, is it out of touch or out of reach? And you lean towards the latter. But just tell us about that, because you say there's a, in your book, there's a widely held statistic that 68% of women are plus sizes. So <laughs> it kind of begs the question, you call it in the book a conundrum, why wouldn't the in industry be catering to those women if they're about selling things and making money? Um, just kind of share some of your thoughts on the every woman who I bet will be most your readers. Maybe not. Yeah, well, I hope so, because this is certainly for them. Uh, I think when I moved out to Arizona just a few years ago, I really saw the difference there. When I was living in New York, you know, I, of course, was friends with these plus size models and influencers, but a majority of people in New York felt very thin. And it was weird to me, you know, where are they? Where is this 68% number? When I moved out to, you know, the middle of the country, as we often call it, I saw them and I saw that they were so different than the people in New York. And that kind of fashion community in New York and LA in these big cities is already so tight. They're so kind of advanced around these topics of inclusivity that for them, it's already the norm. But then when you get to these places that are outside the cities, that are kind of the, the middle of the countries, you realize that those people really haven't even been exposed to these topics yet. This is still new to them. Um, they aren't part of this 
community per se. They aren't part of this conversation. And so things like body positivity for them, that's just something they've seen in probably, you know, a few commercials, a few ads, but they don't know what that means to them on a personal level. They don't really know where to shop other than Torrid and Lane Bryant. They don't know what conversations are happening on social media or in the magazines. Um, and so that's why I lean towards out of reach. And I think the problem is with designers and brands right now, they don't know how to reach them. And we saw this recently with Old Navy, who last year made this big splash with their Bada Quality Initiative, and they were putting sizes 0 through 28 in every store, and that's 1,200 stores across the country. They changed their imagery. They made this huge splash, and not even a year later, they've had to readjust and take it out of some stores because it's not selling and it's not meeting their you know demands and all this. And I think it shows that there are so many people who are not as advanced in this conversation simply because they've never been given the tools to understand it. And designers don't know how to reach them. Brands don't know how to get to them and to say, you know, you're welcome here now. You can come here. You can be a part of this. Because for decades, they've been conditioned to believe that they can't be a part of this. They have shut their eyes to fashion, to shopping, to the possibility of feeling glamorous because they have been told since essentially their birth that they cannot be a part of this because of the way they look. So it's not a about just finding where they are you can go to any state and i'm sure you'll find them but then how do you reach them and touch their hearts how do you work against those decades of conditioning to really open up their minds to the possibility here and to welcome them in and that's the biggest issue we're seeing now designers know how to do plus now there are resources for them to do it it's not like it was in the 1990s where no one knew how to design for plus it's far different now they know the investment it requires but at the end of the day they don't know if they'll reach her and if they can't reach her they can't make a return on profit and so that's why they're so afraid to do it because unfortunately with things like old navy it shows you that it's not as easy as just saying 68% of American women are plus size. We know that number, but that doesn't mean that all 68% are ready to shop. And so that's, we need to find a way to kind of bridge that gap and reach them and open them to this conversation. Well, you dedicated your book and usually book dedications don't um, hit a chord with me and make me ask, but your book dedication says, for the women who changed my life and the people who saved it. Can you just tell us what that means? Yeah, I think writing a book dedication is a very difficult thing. And for me, because this book is so community oriented, I knew I was not going to dedicate it to a singular person. but it was hard to figure that out. And so I knew at first I wanted to dedicate it to the women the book is about and the women who are included and the people it represents. So that's that first line there. But then I really stepped back and I thought, but what, what is this dedication? What's the purpose here? And I think for me, I had gone through such a difficult period in life, you know, from age 18 until I was about 21, where I felt like I had no purpose, where I felt I was lost. And so much of that changed once I started feeling welcomed into these communities and and part of these conversations. And it wasn't a singular person who did that. And I think everyone was able to contribute in different ways. And they were able to help me without realizing it. And that's my favorite part about being a journalist is for years, I sat there doing all these interviews and speaking to all these people and getting to tell their stories. And they didn't even realize that they were helping me on a personal level to heal all these wounds just by sharing with me because I was able to learn through their stories. And so when I wanted to write this dedication and show people that this is not just a celebration of these women. It's also a thank you for everything they had done for me and all the people who had been able to support me and kind of bring me back to life at a time when I felt 
like my life was nothing. Um, and so that's what I kind of wanted to capture with the dedication. Well, you did. <laughs> I bet they'll <laughs> love it. So our time has gone so quickly. Do you have any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Yeah, I, I would just like to say, you know, of course, this book is for people who love fashion and, and people who are, you know, love body diversity in this conversation. But really, I want everyone to read this book. And I think it's about more than just whether or not you are a plus size person in fashion. I think this is an issue that impacts everyone because we all know someone in our life who has felt othered because of their size and has felt kind of rejected because of the way they look. Um, and so I think this is a conversation we can all be a part of. And I actually think that's the future is a future where we can all talk about this. We're all cognizant of the issue. We're all working together and not against each other. Um, and so I hope this book is read by all and not just plus size women, but by everyone who wants to help make it change here and help people feel more included in the conversation. 